From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, welcome to the Friday edition of Open Line. I'm your host today, uh, Colin Donovan, Vice President for Theology at EWTN. And I'm here with my uh, steady uh, radio producer, Mike McCall. We're holding down the fort here as we head into this holiday weekend. So uh, we certainly wish uh, all Americans listening, uh, we wish them a a great uh, July 4th Independence Day celebration. And for any Canadians that are listening, happy Canada Day to my fellow Canucks. Uh, We hope that uh, you celebrate this and uh, uh, continue the good fight for truth and light up there in Canada. So we have, uh, we have a number of ways in which you can contact us. You can contact us by calling uh, from our, our toll-free number at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. Or if you're outside uh, North America, you can call us at 1-205-271-2985, one 205 271-2985. You can also text us EWTN by texting uh, EWTN to 55000 and we'll respond back and you can give us your first name and your question in your response to that. We're also streaming on EWTN.com of course and on uh, the EWTN app and on smart devices. Uh, as well as on the YouTube channel. So you can check us out and even ask questions on on the latter uh, quite easily. So uh, we hope that uh, we'll be able to do that today. Uh, Maybe a couple things to start off the show, just of note that, of course, a week ago today, we had the uh, Dobbs decision, which uh, returned the question of abortion to the states, uh, and obviously, from the Catholic perspective, uh, it was not a ideal or perfect decision, but it does at least uh, reduce the, the number of abortions in the United States, and that's a good thing, that human lives are saved, the opportunity to come to birth and be baptized, which is also of great importance, something that abortion prevents and every Catholic ought to be incensed about. Uh, so we... We, we have that to look forward to, and now the battle uh, will continue uh, in the states. And I think also to uh, get the personhood of uh, the unborn child recognized, because that's at the root of this. Uh, the United States, sadly, has had a sketchy history in the application of what in moral, philosophical, and legal terms is described the human person, uh, and certainly in the early uh, decades of the, of the nation, uh, blacks and slaves in general uh, did not have that, uh, that recognition as persons. Uh, we certainly have that since Roe v. Wade with the, uh, with the unborn. And we also have uh, at the end of life with the sick the idea that uh, when, by our judgment, they can be judged to not have a satisfactory life, uh, that they can uh, be euthanized, essentially. 
So there's a lot to be done to establish the legal personhood of all human beings from conception to natural death, as Pope John Paul II and all the popes have taught it, as our bishops teach it in the United States and around the world. And so we need to uh, we need to continue the prayer. We need to continue the work to accomplish that. Uh, so I, I think that's that's an important consideration as we go into this holiday weekend. That not everybody in the United States, the many unborn, for example, who are in the United States right now inside of their mothers, benefit from the citizenship and from the legal personhood uh, that we are able to benefit from. And I think. Uh, that's a sadness. Uh, we have the great joy of Dobbs, but we have the sadness that it's not been extended yet to all persons, all biological individuals of the human species. The only logical and reasonable definition of a human person uh, that follows from the truth, that follows from science. Anything else is subjective. And when you draw the line at some place other than conception, you make that's, those persons subject of others. It can be the mother, it could be the slaveholder, it could be the family member watching the, the person dying, but they become the subject of somebody other than themselves and other than God. And so uh, we still have work to be done in this country. So I think that's uh, something to be grateful for what we have, but to continue working for what we do not yet have. Well, let's take uh, uh, an email uh, question in the, this remainder of this segment. A friend works 12-hour shifts at a factory, and his hours every other weekend require him to miss uh, mass. The priest says that if he can't, if he asked his priest if he can go to communion on the Sundays, he can attend mass. He was told no. His priest said he must go to confession every week. He misses Mass before receiving. Uh, with this kind of work hours, he's not able to go to Mass, and so he doesn't uh, attend on the Sundays. He's, uh, he is able to go since he has not gone to confession. Well, there's a couple things there. Uh, I think the standard is, uh, is not the Church's standard that he's been told. Uh, people, sometimes they must work in service uh, uh, service industries, hotels, hospitals, police, fire, army, military, and so on. And other people must simply work to feed their families and, and to provide for their families. And so that's a question that has to be taken into consideration. Unless there is the unwillingness to go to Mass when one is able to, for some reason, then there's unlikely to be mortal sin. And so I don't think that there is probably the obstacle to going to Mass and communion uh, that uh, has been cited to him. So I think that's in, uh, in error. The other element of it is that even in, even in thinking that, well, I can't go to communion, why go to Mass? There is the question of the Church's precept that we must go to Mass on Sundays. It's an it's a obligation to go to Mass on Sundays. So he is, not, he is not following that precept. So going to Mass, uh, many, many people, certainly during my, gener of my generation early on before the Council and older generations, they went to Mass and they went to communion rather infrequently. They fulfilled their Sunday obligation, and so he can as well. So I would disagree with the judgment that uh, having to work by no choice of his own, really, 
uh, he's prevented from going to Mass and Communion. That's something to maybe find a, a solid, holy, and orthodox priest to guide him in the confessional, uh, but I think that's as e- easily uh, fixed. Uh, he ought to go to Mass on Sunday regardless, however, uh, whether he's able to go to Communion. That's his obligation. That's his way of giving thanks to Christ for the great gifts of, of, of the redemption and to the Father for creation and to the Holy Spirit uh, for the graces of sanctification, justice, and so on that we receive through, uh, through his mission as the Holy Spirit. So I think uh, a little bit uh, short-sighted thinking there uh, on, on part of the priest that he consulted. Linda asks, how can I surrender to the will of God and still have prayers of petition? Well, God is omniscient, we are not. So our prayers of petition uh, involve contingent things, things that we would like to see happen, things that we feel that are necessary to our life or our happiness, or maybe simply uh, human enjoyment that doesn't violate, you know, any moral law or any, cause any moral problems. And so, we may freely make those requests of God. What we should also have with that is the will to surrender to his judgment as to whether it is good for us. Uh, He may judge that it is not good for us, that it might actually be detrimental to us spiritually in some way. So that's a surrender that we can always have, even while humbly, regardless of what we think is, we think something is important, put it before the Lord. And we can also seek the grace to understand well, do I really need this? Or maybe I ought to give it up for some reason or not seek it for some reason. Um, you know, it's very easy, easy to buy a lottery ticket, for example, thinking, well, <laughs> I'd love to win this, and I'm going to pray that to win it. If God wants to give it to me, give me the money, I'll use it well. I'll use it well for the service and love of others as well as for the needs of myself and my family. But to expect it simply because we've asked, that's an entirely different matter. So uh, uh, I think we ask, and, we, and then we wait on the Lord for, for his answer in these questions. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit of a tricky negotiation to make, but uh, it shows us humbly bringing all things to him and humbly accepting from him his decision and whatever uh, he determines is going to be best for us in the particular case. So when we come back, uh, we've got a couple callers on the line already. Marsha and Mark will take their calls, and we have several lines open. So please give give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Back in a moment with Marsha and Mark. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. And welcome back to Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Michael McCall, producer of Open Line. And right now I want to tell you about a new product we have at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's a new book by uh, Open Line Thursday's very own Father Brian Mullady entitled St. Thomas Aquinas Rescues Modern Psychology. Now in the struggle to find the touchstone between faith and reason, modern psychology is often a very problematic area for Catholics. 
In this powerful and reassuring book, Father Brian Mullady examines the nature of a healthy Christian emotional life and ultimately provides the Catholic answer to the problematic theories of Sigmund Freud. Drawing from the writings of St. Teresa of Avila, Father Mullady clarifies the purpose of prayer and the stages of spiritual growth. He then shows how the Holy Spirit can create authentic communion between your intellect, will, and passions, and how through openness to sanctifying gifts, you can be restored to the original integrity of a child of God. And this new book is available now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders, $75 or more, and that standard shipping is only in the continental United States. Be sure to use code FREE at checkout. Back to you, Colin. Okay, so uh, just uh, we have a couple lines open still. Uh, remember those numbers are 833-288-3986, 833-288-EWTN. Or if you're outside the United States and Canada, one 205 271 Well, let's go to uh, Marsha in Buffalo, New York. Good afternoon, Marsha. Hi, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I was hesitant to go to the new movie about Elvis because I was afraid <laughs> that it would promote ungodly standards and kind of, you know, seduce the audience and make it seem like it was just fun and, and cute and really, like, undercut you know, mm-hmm. godly beliefs and everything. And then I was given a ticket by my family for my birthday, so I kind of felt kind of pressured to go. And it was exactly like that. It was um, mm-hmm. like the mother says to Elvis, sure. God gave you this gift, and then and then it shows him being, you know, seducing the audience, and that um, he was, like, one of the songs that they picked, one of the first songs they had him perform was I'm Evil. And um, it was just... You know, you could just tell that they were subtly mocking out, you know, Christianity, mm-hmm. um, godly standards and stuff like that. So yeah. once you've um, given in and gone to see a movie like this, which I do not recommend because, you know, they're mm-hmm. really trying to play with people's minds out there, I think. Um, should you stand up and walk out or, you know, once I'm there, stuck yeah. with all my whole family? Sure. But I rate if I stay just because, you know, I, it was just exactly what I was afraid of and yeah, I, I mean, that's a dilemma we face today because, uh, you know, so many movies are nonsense, to use a non-French word, if you will. Um, you know, it's sort of hard. Uh, I, I would say it depends on what the objectionable thing element is. Uh, the Church's moral tradition recognizes, for example, in in the case of nudity, uh there was, a, I remember the, the great movie, it's, I think it's a pretty good movie, actually, Schindler's List, describing uh, what a Catholic man did uh, to uh, lead thousands, get thousands of Jews uh, secretly out of the camps while, you know, pretending to play along with the Nazis. And they show, uh, the nudity they show there is, you know, largely of the, of the people themselves who are in the camps. And so, you know, some people are concerned, well, there's a movie that, you know, I should never go watch. Um, it's like a lot of things. If, 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 is, if something is an occasion of sin for you, and nudity by itself is not an occasion of sin, but certainly sexual behavior in movies, there's, 
you know, there's something that it's very hard to, you know, should you be go- going there? Think of the think of the people who made the movies and uh, asked to do those kinds of things. So I think once you move from something like that, where it's just a question of, you know, is this a personal weakness on my part, to something like blasphemy, and what you described sounds nearly blasphemous. For something like that, I would personally get up and walk out, just as if something came over the television like that, turn it off. Why would you watch that? Um, and so I, I think there, there is a on things which are, for example, in movies, you may see some partial nudity or something like that, and they may otherwise be good movies. That's understandable. And so your own personal level of tolerance and what you're, what it, is that an occasion of sin for you, I think, determines it. Where something is in itself totally uh, morally objectionable, the actual doing, making of the movie in that way, with that intention, then clearly I think that's something that you say, no, I'm not going to support this. And um, I think even if you were in the company of people who in all goodwill invite you to go to such a movie, uh, you would want to say, you know, this not only is not according to my taste, but offends my my belief as a Catholic and leave. Uh, most people won't even know you're, you've left the audience, but nonetheless, you won't have to sit there and take care, uh, you know, uh, be the recipient of other people's blasphemy. So I, I think the case is important. Um, I think the, the uh, objective sin being promoted, that's an important element. Something that is reasonably related to the storyline, such as in a movie like Schindler's List, probably not something that children should see, obviously, but adults should be able to do that with per- perfect equanimity. Uh, and if they have a particular problem with with seeing uh, some nudity like that or shocked by it, then I think then uh, that's something that they, yeah, I'm not going to watch this. And that's a personal choice. So one is of necessity, I think, if there's real sin involved or attempt to motivate people to it. Uh, and other is uh, going to be in circumstances like a Schindler's List. I think something that could be tolerated uh, for the rest of the the storyline, since by itself it is not sinful. Nudity is not sinful, except as to uh, lead others into sin. We make many exceptions for when uh, people can be completely nude, for doctors, uh, obviously children, but in other circumstances we gauge whether what the effect will ha- be having on others especially others of the opposite sex. And that's where the decision, uh, I think, lies in that particular case. Thank you. And, you know, I'd just like to warn all Christians out there that it's really, I think that they're out to seduce people's yeah. minds rather yeah. than... That, that doesn't, doesn't sound like one to go to. <laughs> okay, thank you for your call, Marsha. Well, let's go to Mark uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. Good afternoon, Mark. Hi. Yes, I got I got a second question I didn't think about at first. Uh, the first question is, uh, is the Church considered the Bride of Christ? And the second question is, can uh, the host be dipped in the blood of Christ now, or is that acceptable in the liturgy? Okay. 
on, on the first, uh, the, the church being the bride is one of the images that is used in Scripture. A number of, uh, of them are. Uh, and they're meant to convey the idea, the unity of Christ uh, and his members, the, the members of the church. So sometimes St. Paul speaks in Corinthians 13, 12 and 13, about the body of Christ. Uh, you know, we, he is the head, we are the members. And so that bond of faith, hope, and love which hold us together, uh, when he talks in the next verse there, 13, about uh, love uh, is what survives. And so love is the binding, uh, the binding thing within the church, between Christ and us and between uh, each of us um, uh, in, in the church itself. So that's one image. The church as the bride is another image because the, the heavenly union is spoken of as the wedding feast of the Lamb. So Christ there in the image of sacrifice as the Lamb. Uh, but also we have the wedding feast of Cana, Cana, which is sort of preparatory for the idea of the wedding feast. We have the, the parables which speak of it as a wedding feast. And we have the consummation of, of, the, of the marriage of Christ and, the, and, and his bride at the end of, the, end of history. And we have the sacramental image, imagery of that which is in marriage in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. So the idea of the church of the bride of Christ is all the way through Scripture. Just as in the Old Testament... Israel, the Lord was the, the considered like the husband of Israel. So this was the this was the preparation, and Israel was accused of being an adulterer because it went after other gods. Uh, so this is human imagery turned to the purpose of teaching a profound view of union, and of course the greatest earthly union is between spouses, husband and wife, male and female. Sadly, I must insist. And so that is the, the greatest earthly sign of the union of the church and Christ, which will be perfect at the end of time when the saints of heaven and the saints of earth, and of course purgatory is emptied, and we're all together in the presence of the Lord. So uh, that is a very scriptural, uh, very scriptural idea, and throughout the Old and New Testament. As to the issue of the, of, the, of the dipping, this is called intinction. The priests, uh, the concelebrants very often do it uh, at the Mass because the main, the, the main celebrant is received from the chalice. It's not permitted as a way of distributing communion generally, um, but it, it can be done. So uh, maybe permitted is not the word. The sign of using the, the cup for the distribution, which is what you see on the altar, that seems to be a stronger sign. But I think because of COVID, many priests, uh, and even before COVID, many priests prefer to do it by intinction. But that has to be done with great care as well, uh, but uh, it, is, it is a permissible form of distributing uh, communion. Does that help? Yeah, um, I, I just thought we did it as children where we actually actually dipped it I, I, no. I'm sorry, no that that is that is forbidden we may not dip it the minister of communion does it's forbidden for the communicant to dip the host in the chalice that's a black and white uh, normative matter okay thank you mm -hmm. of course Mike that doesn't mean that 
that hasn't gone on in parishes or even still goes on. But uh, uh, anyway, so it is. Um, well, let's go to uh, Atlanta and uh, Charles, who's listening there. Good afternoon, Charles. Oh, we're going to the break first. Okay, well, we'll be back with Charles after this break. And don't forget, we've got some open lines. 1-833-288-3986. 833-288-3986. And you can ask questions also on our YouTube channel. And you can text uh, EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response and then send your name and your question that way as well. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And welcome back to Open Line Friday. I'm your producer, Michael McCall. Wanted to give a congratulations to uh, and thanks to Living Bread Radio in Ohio, our longtime partner with EWTN of 18 years. They have three stations serving Canton, Akron, and Cleveland. We're very blessed to work with Barb Gaskell and her team at Living Bread Radio, now celebrating 18 years of great Catholic radio with EWTN. Colin? Yeah, that's a wonderful station. Uh, I don't know if you were working here when we had our uh, family celebration in Canton, which is, of course, Mother Angelica's hometown. And Barb was one of our hosts. Just a great chance to see their radio station and to see the city where Mother Angelica grew up. And uh, I think the monastery, uh, I think she entered there before she ended up in uh, Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken, and then she came down here. But uh, anyway, her her life and her journey began there, and uh, Living Bread does a fantastic job there with uh, uh, Catholic Radio. Well, let's go to uh, Charles, uh, listening in Atlanta, Georgia, and his question. Good afternoon, Charles. Yeah, thanks. Hey, thank you. What brought to my call was, uh, a minute ago you were answering a question about someone, mm-hmm. I guess he was confused as why, but how would they go to Mass if sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're breaking up some. Looks like we've uh, lost Charles. Yeah, he's basically, we get, basically get, asking, uh, you know, how do Catholics worship? What would be some of the benefits of going to Mass if you couldn't receive communion? Right, yeah. The, the Catholic form of worship is very precise. It's based on what our Lord himself said, do this in memory of me. So Christ was setting there on, on, at the Last Supper the stage for the events that would follow his, his passion, his death, and his resurrection. And so the Last Supper is, uh, for the Church, the representation of all of those events. The way we, 20 centuries after they occurred, uh, are able to enter into those, not obviously in the literal sense of, of being historically present there, but because Christ is with the Father, we can always uh, enter into the mystery of Christ. And in, the, and in the Eucharist, we have Christ present in the minister, offering his own sacrifice to the Father in this uh, unbloody fashion. And therefore, he constantly in this sense, as, as I think we're told in the, in the letter to the Hebrews, constantly offering himself to the Father in almost a continuous fashion. Because as God, he bridges time and eternity. And so those temporal acts have this eternal value, which then we are then celebrating in the Mass. And so it is not so much us worshiping by ourselves as individuals, but united to, in the whole communion of the saints, 
In the Mass, we are united to Christ our head, whose sacrifice is perfectly pleasing to the Father. That's the worship we render, not because we do it, you know, little old Colin and Mike, that we're so fabulous that God can't do anything but accept our, our worship from our hands. Our voices are beautiful. Our words are elegant. Oh, I'm pleased with that. No, sacrifices I don't need, he told us. But he wants a heart pure, a conscience pure offered to him. And that who is that heart? It's Christ. And the prophet Malachi prepared that by saying that from the east to the west, a perfect offering would be made. And that is exactly what happens in the Mass. In all 24 time zones around the world, almost continuously and probably more or less so, that pure sacrifice is offered to the Father, and it's the representation of the one sacrifice of Calvary, and it is the perfect worship because it's Christ that's doing it, our head, the head of our head of the church, the head of his body, and we, we offer that worship. And that's why the Mass is necessary. So all the things which prepared in the Old Testament and even in the oral law promulgated by the Pharisees, you know, the various rules and regulations around, uh, around the Sabbath. As the Lord himself said, the Sabbath wasn't for that. The Sabbath is, of course, for the worship of God and the thanksgiving for, to God for his great gifts. And just as the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday thanked him for the gifts of creation, the Christian Sabbath of Sunday thanks him for the gifts of redemption. And so he who redeemed us is the one who thanks him on our behalf, and we unite our thanks uh, in the Mass. So that's what we do. It's not made up of, of singing and a sermon and, uh, you know, human gladness, but it's the gladness and joy that comes through giving thanksgiving in Christ and then receiving him in Holy Communion and being united to him for those moments and then going out and bringing Christ to others as we're told to do at the end of Mass by the, by the celebrant, you know, the Mass is ended, which means go out, take this to everybody, be the Eucharist, as it were, for everybody, uh, be the face of Christ for everybody, the hands of Christ for everybody. So the idea of the Catholic Mass, uh, as also celebrated by the Orthodox and the other um, sacramental and liturgical churches with uh, apostolic origin, is the same. Um, it's not we who worship, it's not it's Christ. Just as when the priest baptized, he understands it's not he who's baptizing, but Christ who's baptizing. He's just the hands. He's just the minister. Uh, and we are just the ministers of our own worship to Christ, to the Father through Christ. And so almost all the prayers of the Catholic liturgy end with that summation, you know, you know that it's to the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit, to him be all honor and glory forever and ever. That's the essence of worship in the Catholic Church. So we have, uh, we have some open lines. If you want to give us a call at uh, 1-833-288-3986, 288 or if outside North America, 1-205-271-2985. Well, let me take uh, uh, an email that came in from uh, Carrie, who asks, If I have perfect contrition and can't make it to confession, can I receive the Eucharist? 
There is a provision for that in the Code of Canon Law by nece uh, necessity. Now, the assumption is that you've committed a mortal sin for which you are sorry, and you don't have the opportunity to go to uh, confession, and that there is some necessity of that. Um, an example commonly used in the seminary, of course, is uh, which I had the privilege of uh, attending for four years, is that the priest who has to celebrate Mass, he's perhaps done something that's mortally sinful, uh, he's sorry he doesn't have another priest. He is obliged to make a perfect act of contrition, which means an act which is sorrow for the sin because it offends God not because, oh, I might be punished or get found out or go to hell or something like that. That's pretty self-oriented. But that the recognition, I've offended God and I'm sorry I did that, to make a perfect uh, act of contrition because he has a necessity. He must celebrate Mass. There could be situations where uh, somebody uh, doesn't, you know, can't go to a priest, uh, a circumstance. You're out in the boonies. There's no priest. But maybe there is a communion service uh, that you can, you can go to. And I'm sure in the mission lands, this is not an uncommon thing uh, where that might be availed of. Another example, I think, I don't know how often it's used in seminaries, but it was certainly uh, mentioned in the one I went to. And you can imagine the, the case of the mother of a priest. Um, there's uh, ordinary shame, ordinary lack of humility such as we would have because we're sinners and we don't want to go to a priest, now that doesn't really cut it. But the special case of the mother of a priest or the father of a priest who would be just mortified to have to go to confession to them by, you know, absolute necessity. Now, they could be very humble and do that, and I, I know there are many, many mothers and fathers of priests who do exactly that. But a particular individual may be, find that very, very hard. That could be such a case, and they wait till the chance to go to another confessor. So I think it's pretty rare, and I think you have to be very circumspect yourself as to whether, eh, I'm just not wanting to go to confession right now or, or something along that line, uh, because we're e we're, it's pretty easy for us to deceive ourselves. Well, we have a, a caller, Susan, in Columbia, Missouri. Let's take her call. Good afternoon, Susan. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I was wanting to ask, all this stuff going on, like in the German church, you know, wanting to bless same-sex marriages and even change the uh, Catholic catechism, um, wording on homosexuality. I think it's very confusing. Um, I wonder if mm -hmm. what, you know, wondered about all this. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I think it certainly confuses people, especially, you know, if they think that this, uh, a local synod or even a national synod has any authority whatsoever to change church teaching or church sacramental practice. It has none. So that's one thing to always keep in mind. Um, you know, I, I think everybody is very confused by the German situation. 
The reason being is that the church in Germany is one, I think, that has been hemorrhaging communicants for decades because it's liberal. The evangelical churches that are strong, as in this country, similarly, they, they're, they're Catholics are leaving them because they find Christ, they find fervor there, uh, or they find in non-Catholic churches that, and this has certainly been the case in our own country over the decades. So I, I think most people are confused as to what the German bishops think they're trying to accomplish there when it's, I think it's demonstrated that fidelity to the, to, to the Catholic faith and Catholic tradition is the thing that attracts people, that attracts young people. If they want to be wishy-washy, they've got lots of places they can go or no place. Why even go to church on Sunday? Or why even receive communion? Uh, so I, I think there, from a practical point of view, that tact is, is bankrupt. It's illogical and it's bankrupt. Uh, but they, and they also have no authority. And I think, I think what Rome, what the congregations or the dicasteries now, as they're called, and the Pope, let them flail about, let them say whatever they want to say. But in the end, it'll come to nothing because they have no authority to to effect it. And if they attempt to effect it contrary to the authority of the Pope then there indeed there are sanctions that can be Rome can give so we'll see how this plays out you know it's like a lot of things maybe it's better to have people vent and get it off out of their system than it is to you know to do the opposite and clamp it down uh so i think in some cases uh other countries are on a similar path of you know whatever you say whatever you want to bring to the synod then you know we we want to hear it. Hearing is fine. Uh, being able to say this is this is going to work in the Catholic Church doctrinally, canonically, uh, fidelity to Christ-wise. That's another matter. So I, I think at the end of the road, it's going to be just a lot of talking in different languages around the church, around the world. Uh, and in the more liberal countries, you're going to get some liberal agenda out of the Senate. And in the more tr- traditional countries, like in Africa and Asia, you're going to get something Catholic out of these synods. And in the end, uh, it will have to all be reconciled. And the only one who can promulgate any last, anything lasting out of it uh, is the Pope. The bishops' conferences have no authority to change the, the catechism. Uh, and you already, by the number of bishops in different countries who have told the bishops, what are you people doing over there? I mean, Catholic bishops uh, signed a, uh, something here a month or so ago, you know, in which they greatly criticized that. Uh, they will never get the support outside of their own conference, so it's sort of it's hard to see what they're trying to do except appease a generation of people perhaps my generation, because we're about the nuttiest there is around these days, uh, appease a generation and maybe thinking that will attract younger, younger Germans or younger whatever country it is to the faith, that's not going to work. The churches that tried that, like the Anglican Church, they've all splintered, they've all gone into conservative and liberal factions, or they simply lost adherence and nobody practices their the religion anymore. So I don't think in the end it's going to work, Susan. So uh, don't get too worried about it. Pray about it and know that uh, it's not going to get beyond pretty much talking. I know um, my mother-in-law, who's 
passed away quite a number of years ago. But anyway, she she was brought up in the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. Then she became a Catholic for my husband when she got married. After her husband passed away, somehow she mm-hmm. went back to Episcopal Church. And when they started having women priests, that was it. She went back to the Catholic Church. Yeah. Well, you know, and there's been two bishops, in, in, including a former chaplain of the royal household, who have who have come into the church. They come in as laymen. I'm not sure if they're going to be ordain, ordained to the priesthood. Or uh, I think the the one bishop, yes, would, would like to be a simple Catholic priest. And the church has done that. We do that in our own country. We have ex Episcopalian uh, ministers who were ordained priests, and so on. So that that'll probably continue. Um, I think I think what history has demonstrated that those kinds of issues are really are more important to people than than I think sometimes churches realize. The family and marriage, as Our Lady at Fatima pointed out, as Sister Lucia pointed out, as uh, as our popes have pointed out, this is the basic human society, and we've been tampering with it now for fifty years, over fifty years, going back to. Uh, humane vitae and contraception, and we've gone so far for down the road on the destruction of fam- marriage and family that it's almost insane. Uh, but it has to be, you know, the 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 truth is going to attract people. So don't worry too much about the nuts out there who think they can reform the universe because I don't know why they think they can, but uh, they're not going to succeed in reforming the church. And here's why. Christ made promises, Christ keeps his promises, and as a pope once told Napoleon, when Napoleon had him captured, he said, you know, uh, Napoleon threatened to destroy the church if the pope didn't do what he wanted him to do. He said, if we clergy and bishops and cardinals have not destroyed the church in 2,000 years, you're not going to. And the same is true today as it was in Napoleon's time. It's always going to be true until the end of the world. So, Stick with the Mother Church uh, through all her ups and downs, because that's where Christ is. That's where the truth is. Well, let's go to uh, Aaron up in my native uh, Canada in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Good afternoon, Aaron. Uh, hello. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, my question today is, so over Lent, my confessor gave me a penance that was for the entirety of Lent, and that's got me wondering what the relationship <laughs> between absolution and penance is. Sure. Yeah, um, well, the priest gives you absolution in, in, the, uh, in the box, or whether you're sitting on a chair across from that in those circumstances, too. He gives you absolution, your sins are forgiven. Now, he is assuming that you're penitent, and he's assuming that you are prepared to do some symbolic, and most penances are symbolic, uh, as it is. How can we ever repay that? The very fact that the Church understands that indulgences, for example, are precisely a way of sort of extending that grace and satisfying uh, it. No, show illustrates that the offenses we give you know, have ripples through our family and relationships and in the church and society that three Hail Marys is not going to fix. But we're demonstrating our goodwill. Frankly, sometimes priests 
give what sounds to me like a very difficult penance to satisfy. You can go to any other confessor and tell him that story, and if he thinks he can, it's excessive, and it might very well be, uh, then he could, he could deliver, deliver you from it. So it seems to me by your even asking the question, it manifests uh, uh, goodwill in the matter. So I think priests, perhaps in our day, give very light penances. Um, I received one recently, which was a little bit out of the norm in that respect, but it was doable in the chapel afterwards. Um, those are the best kind because you're not always on the hook. But, you know, if a priest says, well, say the rosary every day for a week, um, try to say the rosary every day. If he says, say the rosary every day for a year, I think I'd be saying, Father, would you please? I don't think I'd be able to do that. Um, so I think if you don't have that discussion in the confessional, if you think that this is just too tough and how are you going to say that, be honest. Um, and if after the fact you have your doubts about being able to do it or that it's, uh, that it's uh, awfully difficult, you can discuss that with another confessor, and he has the ability to, you know, to mitigate that or say, no, you, you've, sat, you've satisfied it by what you've done right now. So that, that's what the power of the key, keys can do after the fact, if you will. But you're absolved in the confessional, and it's only if you have the will not to do penance that the absolution is invalid because that's an element that you must bring to your penitence is the will to do penance of some kind. That goodwill was, is sufficient. Uh, if you left there saying, well, I'm not going to do that or I don't, you know, I'll get the absolution and then that's the end of it for me. Then you didn't get absolved because your, your willingness to do the penance is part of the bargain, if you will. Does that help? Yes, I does. Thank you very much. Okay, very good. Well, let's go back across the border to Worcester, Mass., and Bob, who's got a question there. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Father. Thanks for taking my call. So, I, uh, uh, Mr. will be fine. Don't ordain me uh, against my will here. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> the, uh, um, so Jesus told the Pharisees, go and learn the meaning of the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And mm -hmm. uh, I haven't understood, I don't understand the meaning of those words yet as it relates to, I mean, I've heard, it seems like we're always asked to sacrifice for our wives, for our families. Sure. Yeah. I, I think if you go to the words of the Our Father, it gives you a good, a good idea. You know, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is the, this is the, the economy the Church uses in theology. I mentioned negotiation and bargain a little bit early on in the, in the show. The economy, this transaction exchange that we make with God over our forgiveness is one of desiring his mercy and being merciful ourselves. Now, the sacrifice of that context, of course, refers to the sacrifices of the old law. They were disposing the Jewish people to the very idea that there could be a spiritual sacrifice. Now, the spiritual sacrifice is preeminently, of course, the Mass, as I was explaining earlier. 
But it's also every time that we choose the will of another, legitimately and morally, over our own. When we dispense mercy, that's also a sacrifice. So sometimes it's very hard to do that sacrifice, and it would be easy if we could just go, you know, slaughter or have a lamb slaughtered down at the temple or do something equivalent in the Christian context uh, than it is to be able to forgive the person who's offended us or do good to the person who hurt us or, you know, be nice to the unfriendly. I mean, those are the kinds of things which really win the heart of God. This is really the whole tenor of the revelations to St. Faustina on the divine mercy uh, and the idea that the, the most perfect following of Christ is, to, is this kind of mercy, because it's, after all, the mercy we will seek of God himself when we die, because it's quite unlikely that most of those listening and most of us here in the studios uh, will be absolutely perfect and have satisfied every demand of temporal and eternal justice. Eternal justice is easy. That's what the confessional's for. It's the temporal, and it's the conversion. It's having our heart converted 100% that is difficult. And I think mercy is the way. You know, it's the fire of purification, uh, the fires that uh, the purify the sons of Levi, as the Old Testament put it. This is, uh, this is the way that we do it. And I think that if we imitate Christ in his giving of mercy, uniting ourselves to his sacrifice, which was ultimately the physical sacrifice meant nothing to the Father any more than the sacrifice of lambs and bulls. It was a sacrifice of love and of the heart that Christ was willing to undergo that for us. That was the sacrifice of mercy, and we can enter into that by treating others similarly, and I think that's the way to look at that, and I hope that's helpful. Well, we've had a lively show today, and uh, as always, I look forward to this, uh, to Open Line every week, and we'll be back with you next week. I hope you all have a great 4th of July and what's left of uh, Canada Day up there in the Northland. And uh, we'll be back with you next week at this time. And I think Jack will be in the house then, too. So, uh, or not, I don't know. We're, we're, we're shrugging here. We never quite know. So uh, we'll wait and see about Jack, but I'll be here in any case. Take care until then. God bless and have a great July 4th. <laughs>